Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides to this journey, my co-host Phil Clyde, me, Jacob Siegel, the knocker-off of tall hats, and our guest today, Santiago Ramos. May you continue to be a person. So today we have a particularly great pairing. Our manifesto is an influential essay by the American Catholic philosopher Michael Novak, entitled The Secular Saint, first published in 1968 in Motive magazine, in which Novak grapples with the new left and the appropriate theological and political response to modern America. We also look at a delicate critique the Trappist monk Thomas Merton made of the essay. For our art, we have the epilogue to Michelle Welbeck's best-selling 1998 novel, The Elementary Particles, which launched Welbeck as a major and controversial French writer, and which engages savagely with the same cultural forces in which Novak saw so much potential. We're joined by Santiago Ramos, a contributing writer to Commonweal Magazine, where he writes about Latin American politics, as well as culture criticism and book reviews. His writing has also appeared in Plow, America, Image Journal, and Salon. He is a former philosophy professor who got his PhD at Boston College, so he's got a Catholic uh, connection. And he's just a, a writer I, I, I always really appreciate, so it's excellent to have him. Manifesto is also sponsored by Fairfield University, a Jesuit university in Fairfield, Connecticut. Fairfield's mission is to develop the creative intellectual potential of students and to foster in them ethical and religious values and a sense of social responsibility. I also teach there in their undergraduate English department and in their Master of Fine Arts and Creative Writing program, which is a low residency program. We're very pleased to be associated with Fairfield and thank them for their sponsorship. Santiago, it's a, a pleasure to have you on today and uh, some excellent, excellent selections here. Tell us why, why the Novak, why this exchange with Merton and how did you tie that together to Welbeck? So the why Novak first, let's say, um, Phil and I, you know, we, we talk about Catholic stuff and literary stuff and political stuff. And he told me, let's do something that's uh, Catholic leftist or leftist Catholic, one of the two. And when you, that term can evoke lots of different things. The way I think about it basically is um, the Catholic Church in the late 19th, late 19th century, 1898, declared itself to be on the side of the working class. And Pope Leo XIII issued an encyclical called Of New Things. And, um, and it repeated that towards the end of the 20th century with John Paul II with uh, another encyclical called Laborum Exercens which I think you talked about in another episode of this podcast yeah, where uh, John Paul II says uh, he evokes the priority of labor over capital when thinking about political economy and uh, social justice. So in that just basic sense, um, of course, you know, socialist Marxists don't, don't buy it because, um, because the popes have also condemned socialism in different times, but that's, I think the basic backbone of it. But then there's, there's other, when people say Catholic leftism, there's other things. There's, I think there's three other things. Like in the post-war period, um, Jacques Maritain, Catholic philosopher, helped to write the UN Declaration of Human Rights. There were a lot of Catholic statesmen in Europe that like constructed the post-war order, like Adenauer in Germany, um, De Gasperi in Italy, the Christian Democratic Party there, uh, Schumann, in, who I think might be 
beatified now. So those guys were pretty establishment, though. They became part of this sort of corporate liberalism that Novak is going to attack. And then there is liberation theology, which is Latin Americans trying to reconcile salvation history with Marxist history. But then there is what brings me to the point, which is American Catholic leftism, which has always been pretty radical, um, starting with, I think, Dorothy Day, who was an anarchist and uh, sort of monastic of the city. You know, she lived on Mott Street. Um, she refused to pay taxes her entire life. She objected to every war, including World War I through Vietnam. Um, she was a sort of urban mendicant. And her, her point of view sort of lives today. I think, I think Liz Brunig, who writes for The Atlantic, is sort of in the same vein. Um, and she was an inspiration to a lot of people, including Thomas Merton, who we'll also talk about today. So this text um, is called A Secular Saint. It was published by Michael Novak, who was a Catholic philosopher who was starting to write in the early 60s. This piece is from 68. May, it was published in May 1968. It was a famous time. And, and it originally uh, appears in First Things, right? <laughs> no. no, this is interesting to me. So like, I had always thought of Novak as being a... Uh, of the left, not maybe not a leftist necessarily, but of like in the sort of school of left wing Catholic social justice theology. Is that a fair description of Novak or do I have that wrong? That's a fair description of Novak in 1968. It's uh, right. after 1975, after Carter, it's completely wrong. After Carter, he wrote a book called The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism. Um, he defended the Iraq war and, uh, his last two published pieces before he passed away were, um, right after the election of Trump saying, uh, you know, supporting Trump basically. So his arc has been very, uh, I mean, fascinating on, on some level. Right. So the guy in the, I, I don't, I think, you know, there's like this Catholic thing of, oh, we had so many great writers in the fifties and sixties. I think Novak was one of them. Uh, he's kind of forgotten precisely because he became a neocon. And, and I think he underplayed his own legacy, by the way, because um, I actually interned for him and, and he's like, why are you so interested in my early work? Because like, it's interesting. So he wrote a lot of books like the Theology for Radical Politics, The Experience of Nothingness, Belief and Unbelief. You know, these are very cool 60s titles. Right. And A Secular Saint, which is a saint, which is the essay that I want to discuss today, which he published in Motive magazine, which was a UC Berkeley based magazine. Of the, of the movement of the time, you know, the, and I think uh, Hillary Clinton was associated with it at some point, which I also mentioned to him and, and he was like, nah, nah, nah. and, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was published in May, 1968. And according to him, I'm sure you guys know how people talk in politics. According to him, Robert F. Kennedy read this essay and told him, this is what inspired me to run. Right. And at the time, Novak was already involved in politics with uh, with um, Gene McCarthy, who was his friend. Mm -hmm. And Gene, Gene McCarthy, by the way, another famous Catholic leftist who uh, was friends with Dorothy Day. Um, and, you know, we, we remember him as like what might have been. Right. Um, so Novak was like, oh, sorry, Gene, I'm going to go for RFK, like many people did. Um, and then, our, you know, how RFK ended. But he claims that RFK read this and he said, look, this inspired me to run. Now, 
is that true? I don't know, but he has published this in an essay in First Things, um, um, like a little memoir that he wrote that I, I, we can include in the, social, in the show notes. So hey, let me let me just try and distill what I think the central argument is here, and then we can take it piece by piece. So that that's Novak, who right, I knew he had that neocon turn, but I also um, I think that it, he had considerable influence, actually probably more influence. He'd become a sort of figurehead, I think, by the neocon period, whereas he was actually an intellectual, generative intellectual influence in the late 60s and early 70s is my reading of the history. And the sort of person whose ideas got picked up by Pop, political popularizers like an RFK or a Clinton or somebody like that. Um, so the the case that he is making here is in its simplest form a case for the um, theological righteousness of the new left, which he acknowledges is a secular political movement. Right. I think that, it, that that's the crudest version of the argument. He is first acknowledging that the, uh, or I shouldn't say acknowledging, that, that's a bit too uh, passive. He's He is arguing himself, and he takes it for granted. I'm not sure that it should be taken for granted, but he is arguing that during this period in American history, in the late 60s, that the most uh, significant really, in effect, he's saying the only um, passionate, uh, engaged movements driving towards what are religious precepts are secular political movements. So he, you know, he has a kind of wry version of this where he's saying, like, maybe the religious movements were too successful insofar as they have now been absorbed into the, they have retreated, the, the putatively religious movements, you know, the Christian church has retreated into a kind of parochial reactionary posture. In, in America, he goes, in America, atheists retain the chief moral imperatives of Judaism and Christianity. They even become the most serious and imaginative leaders in the attempt to realize these values in our society. Judaism and Christianity have succeeded so well in commending basic human values that perhaps churches are no longer necessary. In the childhood of our culture, they instructed us. In our adulthood, we are on, <clears throat> we are on our own. I think it would be fair to say that that's a tongue-in-cheek. Yes. That, that my reading of that is that it's tongue-in-cheek, yep. but it is intended as a kind of provocation. Um, and he is making a serious argument He's not making a serious argument for the permanent obsolescence of the church, but he is making a serious argument for the absorption of true Christian or theological principles into these secular movements and then talking about sort of how maybe to meld this, uh, to, to meld the unacknowledged Christian dimension in the political movement with the, the overt um, theology. And then the thing that really captured me here, and I think maybe a place to start, is in the way that he describes the new left, it got me back to thinking about the new left in its own terms. 
And I've spent a long time thinking about the new left in terms of the critiques of the new left from mm -hmm. both, you know, conservatives and from uh, more orthodox leftists who I've read and absorbed over the years. And so I don't think I had dealt in an honest way in a long time with the new left as it saw itself in relation to both the America of the time and the, let's say, old left of the time, which I think is the, the phrase Novak mm -hmm. uses in the piece. And Novak's framing of the new left in this piece, and I, I want to talk about it because I think, you know, I don't 100% buy it, but I was moved by it. I was like, it resonated with me emotionally and it sort of pushed me out of my own uh, kind of stale, biased, uh, you know, and I, it's not like I'm, I've come around to, to think, yeah, the new left had it all right, but I, I hadn't thought about it in its own terms in a long time. This got me to do that, and I, I was thinking, oh, I, I agree with a lot of this, you know? Yeah, let's start with, like, the tongue-in-cheek comment, because I think, I think you're right. I think it is a provocation. I think he doesn't fully mean it. But there is a sense, a theological sense in which he seriously does mean it, because at the time he was, um, there were two influences. One is this idea of religionless Christianity, which is a cryptic line from the notebooks of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous uh, Lutheran uh, pastor who was uh, killed by the Nazis. And, and his writings, you know, are now you know, considered a classic. But he, he says at one point, we will need to embrace a religionless Christianity. No one, I think it's very debated what that meant but the way people in, interpreted it at the time in the 60s was a sort of um death of god christianity remember the the, the time magazine cover in 1967 is god dead that sort of had, god had emptied himself into history and now we were realizing the values of christianity without god and so he was taking it that way the other way that he was taking it was um, there was a uh, will herberg i think was a sociologist who wrote a book called protestant catholic jew uh, yeah, 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 famous book, yeah. yeah. And he says, like, uh, the, these three religions, they live by the same values, and that's why the American experiment works. So there's a sort of crazy, like, radical theological dimension to this and a more mundane American sociological dimension. And But what I think is key here and what I think is fatally mistaken maybe in, in Novak is, is a sort of reduction of religion to values, right? So the first line, the part that Phil quote is exemplary, but also first line of the essay, the quest for human values in our society, one must say at the beginning, has been radically secularized. Values and secularized are the two things that I think are problematic and that Merton's going to attack. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the I, wait, what, what, before we get to what, that, what does this make you think of, though? Like, hold on. The Bonhoff, is that his name? I'm sorry. I don't know. Bonhoff, Bonhoff is his name? And, and yeah. say the phrase again. Religionless Christianity. Okay. Religionless Christianity. Phil, come on. What novel? Wise Blood. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, exactly. that's not the church without Christ. I mean, like, isn't that? It's like you know the the grotesque Flannery O'Connor's grotesque is like, it's just it's just a paraphrase of thing you know of the reality. Yeah, and 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 he's trying to figure out what I think the religious thinker should do in this time. So there's. The quest for values has become radically secularized. At the same time, he's, he writes, 
it becomes increasingly difficult to see how a Christian can live in these United States and not protest with every fiber of his being against the militarization of American life, the appalling mediocrity of American imagination and sensibilities, and the heedlessness and irrationality of merely technical progress. Moreover, a Christian theologian cannot remain silent at the way in which business and government have industrialized and thus enslaved the university. What is at stake is the quality of human life. When the spirit of man is suppressed, God begins to die. And, and so then there's the question of, okay, so what do we do? And there's, um, there's sort of the spirit of, uh, of the age which is passing away, in which he has this sort of history in which after World War II, our sort of radical hopes become diminished, right? And we reduce things to technical questions, right? Um, because uh, too much ideology has led to massive bloodshedding. And, uh, and so there's this kind of like pragmatism that tempers ideology in the age of post-World War II and also in the age of, of the Cold War, right? When nuclear annihilation is a distinct possibility, right? And so there's this kind of like pragmatic view of life, which um, operates within a system of values. It seeks to bring about reconciliation and adjustment. It cannot call the whole system into question. To indulge in ideology or metaphysics or theology thus becomes suspect, subversive, and dangerous. And then you have, you have the old left and the new left. And the old left is concerned primarily with the resurgence of the radical right, right? And so believes in compromise, consensus, and moderation to keep the right quiescent, right? Um, and the, the new left has a much more radical response to the world, which he thinks is necessary because as society progresses and as our techni technological capabilities and scientific cap capabilities progress, uh, it's no longer sufficient to just turn things into technical questions, right? When you have the sort of incredible power of human society, technology, science, um, you need to actually start making decisions. And, and, and the example he first gives, he says, you know, which arrangements of a city allow for the development of human potentialities? We've moved from the area of discourse of John Dewey's social planning and pragmatic adjustment to the area of discourse of Aristotle's architectonic to question of ends to a metaphysics become, notes Marcuse, physical. That like even sort of how you physically design things, uh, there's going to be a sort of implicit view of human beings um, that you're either affirming or rejecting. And so this sort of the suppression of, of ideology, suppression of values, suppression of theological concerns, concerns ultimately with what is a human being and what what satisfies what a human being needs, right? Even in terms of how you design a, uh, a city is ultimately going to be a theological question. And so you're going to need to confront any sort of has these like um, section headings, uh, questions of hope, evil, idolatry, human, uh, and human dignity, right? And then he sort of goes through those and, and what the response of the human left is on, on kind of- The new left. So yeah, the, the new left. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and I think an interesting 
point that he makes is because it's a kind of a give and take. It's not like he's saying, oh, the new left, we'll just embrace you and we'll empty ourselves like religionless Christianity, new left Christianity. There is a little bit of a, of a tug as well because he says the new left should ab- abandon the word ideology and adopt the word theology and not be scared of it because theology ultimately at, at this point means this question of ends, the architectonic of Aristotle. And even like the fact that he mentions Aristotle also sort of betrays that he is kind of a, he's not so radical that he only talks about Marcuse or something, right? He also talks about Aristotle. So there is a little bit of traditionalism or whatever you want to call it in, in his way of looking at the world. Um, and also the yeah. fact that he, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it's a gentle tug. I, I know what you're saying, but um, I expected more of a of a challenge on the grounds that you're talking about, frankly. And I kept thinking that the essay was building towards that. And it seemed to me um, a sort of, um, t- you know, somewhat timid in, in its willingness to confront the moral authority of the new left for re- I don't want to speculate a, you know I don't know enough about Novak and where he was coming from at the time but one could see a scenario in which just the sort of uh, the the kind of new this is what Merton says in part or implies is like there is a moral authority in newness and that there is seems to be a kind of deference to the new and to the vanguard and so i i i i know what you mean Santiago, but i felt like it was mostly at the length at the level of language that you know he's like okay yeah but you know adopt theology as your conceptual rubric but don't worry about adopting a, a view of the sacred, like that never really enters into it as far as I can tell. Yeah. And, and that is, I agree with you. That's a, that's a, that's a big criticism because by the way, he's also making a claim of, of Judaism and in Protestant Christianity and Catholic Christianity, not just the Catholic church, uh, that somehow those religions can be, um, fully expressed or fully manifest in human lives through the expression of, political and social values and the sacred doesn't come up. You're right. And also the, the eternal doesn't really show up as much. It, the secular is the opposite of the eternal, right? It's the, the time that we live in. Um, when does the eternal break in? Right. Uh, we need at least uh, once a week for the eternal to break in. Right. Um, and I think those are things, I think the reason why he is more, um, excited about the new left than um, maybe you are, you know, 70 years later is he taught, he was teaching at Stanford. He was close to a few of the students um, who were involved in the new left. He wrote another essay about that called green shoots of counterculture. He, he claims that one of his early essays called God in the colleges was discussed by the people that were writing the Port Huron statement, which founded the new left. Yeah. Yeah. And, And you have to remember that Mario Savio, the great, the guy that gave that great speech about the machine uh, at Berkeley was Catholic and openly about it. And, you know, he was, I mean, he was a really good guy, actually. In fact, he's probably the best of them all. He died very young. He was a math teacher, but he gave this one speech. When it, you know, maybe we can play the clip. It's just a beautiful speech 
emblematic of the new left. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Those things made him seem, okay, this does seem like a great movement that is actually expressing human values. Now, the 70s and all the violence of that would come later, and that's when he would become a neocon, by the way. So let's, should we go, go through the values that he sees in the new left that he thinks are important yeah. and, and tied to religious concerns? So the first one is hope. And the point that he makes is that insufficient hope means complacency, right? That those who are satisfied with the status quo, um, that betrays a certain degree of hopelessness, right? That like you see the world around you riven with evil and rather than adopt a, the kind of revolutionary mindset of the new left, you sort of say, well, you know, this is the way the world is. You reconcile yourself to it. Um, and against that, he, he says, you know, the, the, uh, the new hope is not optimism. It is hope. It is just enough hope to act on. It is a very guarded hope. It is a hope very close to despair. It is a hope that has discovered evil. All right. And then um, evil, he leans hard on the Vietnam War, right? And the sort of the strength of the moral complaint uh, against that. Uh, and then the, um, in the bit on idolatry, um, he, this is, you know, this is where he really does the contrast between the old left that believes in reconciliation and, and that is primarily afraid of, of the resurgence of the radical right. Um, and uh, the <laughs> according to the new left, the number one power in the United States is corporate liberalism. An alliance of technical experts, well-paid professors and communication specialists, managers, staff, politicians, professional social workers, and tycoons of the new technologically based industries. These people together accept the present system as a given. Many of them recognize its inadequacies and labor to change it from within, but they are well paid by the system. They are its organizers, its leaders, its brains and nerves. They are its priests. The new left could not accept this system. Of nothing do they speak so bitterly as the establishment. In the eyes of the new left, the radical right is no danger at all, only a mirage by which the old left justifies its own caution, a devil summoned up to dramatize the continuing need for the sacramental system of corporate liberalism. Brother, when I tell you that this piece like revived my sympathies for the new left, uh, <laughs> that, let that me was assure you that passage is very much what I had in mind. And I, I you know, I am obviously obvious to you know anyone who who has spoken with me in the last decade, sympathetic to the point of view that it is this technocratic. Um, you know, I don't, wouldn't even call it liberal anymore, but tech, neoliberal technocracy, corporate technocracy is a much greater danger than the resurgence of a fascist right, let's say. Though, you know, unlike 
some other people who make that argument, I think I am more sensitive to the possibilities of a resurgence of the far right. I don't, I don't dismiss that. And I do consider, uh, I do think that there's a kind of er version of the far right that has a perennial temptation. Um, so while I think I, it's overdone talk about fascism at the moment, which sort of ignores the actual material conditions in which, you know, fascism emerged, I, I do, you know, anyway, I, I, I do think there's a, a risk um, always, and I, and I don't think like the far right is dead forever, whatever that might mean. But take a moment just to appreciate how that opposition between old left there and, and new left that Novak has, has completely sort of turned around if you think about the the present political landscape, right? So like, who are the people now today who are most concerned with the resurgence of the, the old right, let's say? It's definitely not the old left. You know, the sort of old left in America at the moment or the people who consider themselves the real left against the sort of mushy left liberals are the people who are like, you know, we're not as concerned with um, these expressions of whatever neo-fascist regalia that are basically just like liberal eccentricities. You know, there is a version of the left that really harps on the idea that making too much of the far right is a kind of neoliberal Jedi mind trick. Um, while there is also a part of of the you know whereas the you know the, that that's a kind of liberal preoccupation now, and whereas like those you know people on the left, people I know and I'm in contact with, um, are very concerned with liberal technocracy. So I just it, it's a sort of fascinating how these things just like tumble through these cycles in this way you know it's like the wheel of history turns and they end up in in still in in opposition just just each on the other side you know it's right. really wild it it, it 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 also just struck me how how yeah that passage could just be written today right and as you say it would be coded slightly differently right you know if you just posted that as your own text, um, people would, would have no trouble sorting you into which team you belonged on, assuming it was, you know, written in the present day without, I, I, don't, I think it would be a totally smooth, you know, transition. It just, it just wouldn't fit into the, you know, precise battle lines of, of 1968. I also think it's, you know, there's a lot of truth there, right? I mean, I... I I am someone who compromise, consensus, and moderation. Uh, I do think are actual virtues. You know, <laughs> like I think they're 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 useful values. Um, and there's a certain kind of radicalism which holds in contempt any notion of trying to say reach out to your fellow citizens right <laughs> in, in, a, in, a, in a spirit of, of of reconciliation and enmity and and, and uh, an attempt to find common ground that I that I, um, I I dislike that impulse to assume that there's no value in that right to um, uh, to adopt such a such a revolutionary mindset uh, that you have 
sort of no concern about the strong preferences of, of your fellow citizens whatsoever. Um, but nevertheless, you know, that description of, you know, the, the radical right is no danger at all, only a mirage by which the old left justifies its own caution, a devil summoned up to dramatize the continuing need for the sacramental system of corporate liberalism. It's just, it's a great line. To be fair, I don't know um, enough about the right in the 60s, but I think it was probably maybe less, um, I mean, there wasn't a, a, an alt-right or new right, well, not new right, but alt-right, um, you know, it was Nixon was the right. Um, and the people that they were really afraid of were the people that had their finger on the right button. And those were not like far right people. They were very well educated technocrats. You know, those are the people that could blow up the world. Right. So those are the people that were they were really afraid of. And and the, the people that were, you know, um, putting down civil rights marches were state um, forces. They weren't like, you know, right wing gangs. So. That's probably why he was more focused on corporate liberalism than than the right. But again, I'm not a historian of right wing politics in the '60s in America, so I defer. No, I think that's I think that's accurate. But I also think that it's not an apologia. How do you pronounce that? I always mess up. Apologia, apologia. There, there's, no, there's no official way to translate Latin. Okay, right. Good point. Especially um, for us Catholics. So. Right. It's not one of those things. It's not one of those uh, Latinate apologies for Novak to say that. Like, I don't think it requires an apology. I think it's just an accurate description. Of it. And and it would have made sense then to say that as well, as you point out. Like, where were the forces of um, authoritarian repression entrenched in American politics at that point in time? It, they weren't in um they weren't in the old far right which you know is sort of after like the drumming out of the uh birchers and uh you know the sort of high water mark of that kind of um mid-century populist right had already passed at this point and it was like the nixonites who are um who are yeah i i think that um I think that it's just it, it it is a fascinating uh sort of like modeling of a dynamic in America that has morphed but persists and I as Phil said I'm just struck by how much how little you would have to change to take that that passage that same fundamental dynamic and and superimpose it on the present I want to ask you, you both, what will you think about the, the religious side? Because yeah, the political side is is um, it's like an you know history rhymes, but well, let's 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 do the the final one, which is human dignity, uh, real quick. Yeah, yeah. So the, the the final value that he thinks that the new left uh, is pushing forward is human dignity, and he says the young do not think of life in a democracy as a matter of social adjustment. They do not define themselves as useful members of society, nor as individuals who wish to make a contribution to society. For two fallacies would underlie such definitions. In the first place, a human being is not a means, but an end. He is not even a means to the betterment of society. Society exists for men, not men uh, for society. But in the second place, the assumption that man is an atomic individual, one who, to be sure, finds his place in and contributes functionally to the social mechanism is also incorrect. 
the primary reality of human consciousness is not the individual, but the community. Um, and uh, community and person are interrelated and cannot be understood apart from one another. And so that emphasis on, again, what the human being is, what they need, um, how that is in radical opposition to the sort of corporate liberalism that he talks about, uh, you know, the, the new left is the social movement at the time that is most powerfully articulating that, you know, what he thinks of as a basic truth, right? And I, I, I agree with that. Well, you, you agree with what? Like paraphrase the basic truth that you think. Um... Um, that, <laughs> um, that man is an, is, is an end, not a means, right? Uh, that your primary definition is not like a useful member of society nor yeah, is, yeah. You know, a contributor to society. That, and also that the primary reality of human consciousness is not the individual, but the community, right? Um, those things. I just happen. think that you mean, it's, I know you're using the same words, but I think you mean something fundamentally different when you say that, then, and I think he is sort of missing something, frankly, in what the new left means when it says that. And this was the part of the piece where I started to think like, oh no, like you're, you are, you are projecting onto them a secular theology you wished they had. And the thing that he leaves out here, right, And he sort of hints at it, but it can't like bring out the real problems and contradictions is this expressive individualism of the new left that in reacting against the small minded, pragmatic, atomic individualism of the the New Deal era, era, let's say, and in wanting something like with all the human goodwill that we all want to be ends in ourselves and that we all want lives of real meaning and dignity. And, and and even in like its understanding of that as being sort of rooted in communitarian uh, arrangements, like still somehow you take all of these things that individually sound so good and so right and so noble. And then in the way you combine them in the new left, they end up producing this expressive individualism that demands uh, first that like the 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 individual be able to invent um, meaning and communal arrangement in ways that have no respect for the ways in which humans as ends in themselves are also constrained by their nature and their purpose and their relation to the eternal. And Santiago, I think you, you're 100% right. I shouldn't have used the sacred. That's not really the thing. It's like what it's missing is the eternal, right? It's, it's only the sense of, of secular time. And it's that one. And, it, and the new left, right? The new left's answer to that is uh, beatification through... Uh, ecstatic experience and through secular portals of transcendence, drugs, orgies, whatever, or just like hippie commune living, even without so much debauchery, let's say. But um, 
Novak seems to be, he, he, he doesn't seem to be, he misses where this is going to lead. He misses the way in which this sort of secular desire for um, religious meaning is going to uh, is going to lead to these excesses that are not respectful of human ends. Well, it's 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 a secular desire for religious meaning that is tied with a radical rejection of society, right? Um, and that that kind of communal element, right, um, that he talks about, where the individual person de dealt creatively only within the context of the community. I mean, that's one of the tensions because it's like, it is this understanding, okay, you know, uh, we do need to have solidarity and live in common. So, we'll, you know, we'll set up a, a commune. We'll, we'll, we'll have these sort of like um, isolate communities in reaction to the so society. But there's, there does seem to be um, a kind of uh, challenge that the sort of revolutionary mindset faces in integrating that sort of the way in which uh, a sense of history and tradition and, and, and kind of broader community is um, needs to be fulfilled and how you, how you square that circle along with the sort of necessary rejection of all that is corrupt and evil in the society. And yeah, yeah these were chosen communities that yeah. he was, in, in, in encountering with the new left, uh, they weren't or they weren't necessarily like organic. They were people with a common political cause, or yep. if they were hippie communes, they were a common quasi-religious cause. Um, but but my my other question would to Novak would be, yes, human beings are ends in themselves, but um, they can be ends in you. You can't just leave it at that because a consumer is also an end in himself, right? Um, Capitalism and society exist to maximize my uh, comfort and consumption. But if it's, I'm also an end in myself in the sense that there's something good for me or that human beings have some sort of uh, destiny that they have to fulfill or that they have to you know, take care of the earth or something like that, um, that's a different end in itself, right? And I don't know if the philosophy behind the new left could have sustained a more you know, a higher sense of, of human beings as ends of themselves. I think that would be, that would be the question that I would have for Novak in his engagement with the new left. To what extent can you get by just talking about values and not talking like metaphysically about what a human being is? Yeah. Well, but I think he's, he's, his argument to be fair to it is that the new left is trying to talk about what a human being is in secularized metaphysical terms. So like, I was with you 100% up until you got there. I think you're absolutely right that the problem with what he's saying is that a consumer is also an end in themselves. And like, you can imagine a version of expressive, um, uh, expressive uh, chosen community freedom that is just consumerist subculture fetishism right like you don't have to imagine it actually right there's no need to imagine it you you can look all around and see a version of um shallowly you know an aristotle's politicization of 
consumer choice, which is, you know, emulating human community in a way that um, promotes a kind of shallow and, and ultimately depoliticized and um, deeply profane uh, communal relation. Like you, you can see that all over the place. So then the question is like, what do you need that is not the secular? What does the secular metaphysics not provide? Because th to take another um, secular Catholic, though, in this case, a, a pagan Catholic, right? Camille Paglia, who even in this late stage of her career, continues to be a champion of um, 60s Aquarianism in a way, right? And like, oddly enough, you know, Paglia continues to sort of champion elements of the new left and the free speech movement. And because she is, uh, she is somebody who still believes in this sort of, um, the, this sort of what I, you know, I always think of Paglia as a sort of tragic libertarianism, like the only way to create great art and great beauty is through this kind of, profane revolt and demand for freedom that ultimately will probably make most people miserable and violates their nature but is but is nevertheless like the beauty of decadence essentially and um yeah so so i i think that this this comes back to where we started which was your point about it's maybe values aren't enough and maybe the maybe the the absorption of only the value level of religion, which seems to be uh, you know seems so promising, can't sustain itself and will end up corrupting itself because we need something more than values. Yeah. Should we should we move on to Merton's? critique then can, yeah can i read one thing because i thought okay. um he says uh i forget where exactly this comes but it, it speaks to this point so i just think this sort of captures it so novak says it is not so much that the freedom spoken of by the new left contradicts that spoken of by the old it is rather that the freedom of the old left is not sufficiently interior not sufficiently personal, not sufficiently rooted in the inner growth and development of the human person. As a legal juridical criterion of action in the public forum, the freedom of the old left is indispensable. The, speak it, the freedom spoken of by the new left cannot be legislated. It can be exercised even in prison, even in a concentration camp, yada, 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 right? So, okay, that's a... It's the ending line. The revolution is in the human spirit or not at all. The revolution is in the human spirit or not at all. Okay, fair enough. But then you have to add on what, he, what I, I ended on there, which is this part about like, and that cannot be legislated, right? Right. And, and so now here you have the new left that Novak thinks is promoting a sense of freedom that exists outside the bounds of the liberal corporate technocratic complex, right? And is demanding a kind of freedom that has to exist outside of that because to satisfy the theological dimension, right, that he's talking about, it has to, it can't be legislated in the sort of small negative freedom kind of way that the old left would try and legislate it. So therefore they, they have like this new, but of 
of course, what ends up happening is all of these students of Marcuse, right, like half a generation later, get into positions of administrative and corporate power and are absolutely legislating this new um, freedom of the spirit in the in the manifest and, and manifold ways. And so, like, the idea that it couldn't be legislated or that indeed it wouldn't, that it couldn't not be legislated, that it wouldn't inevitably be legislated, just strikes me as a, a failure of both political and religious imagination. Yeah, when, when I saw that passage, uh, I, I sort of thought of from a different angle. I'm like, wait, I thought this was a political manifesto, but that <laughs> there's this part that can't be, can't be uh, legislated. It's just your own interior growth um, of freedom despite anything, uh, you know, that like, what was the, the famous words that Mandela said uh, before he was, uh, when he was on trial, that I am the master of my soul, despite whatever you might do to me. It's, that's great. I agree with that. But it's, yeah, it's, it's not something that you can just get overnight through the rubber stamp of a, of a senator. Okay, so I think we've covered a lot of the Novak here, and it'll be interesting now to bring in this this Merton response. I don't really – I think, Phil, you've mentioned him to me before. Thomas is his first name, right? Thomas Merton? Yeah. And uh, I feel like I know next to nothing about him, but I, I'm almost certain you've mentioned him on the podcast before. Yeah, he was uh, – he brought my grandmother and grandfather together because my grandmother – he got my grandfather got into an elevator. Uh, he had been a Jesuit novitiate. Uh, he got into an elevator, and my grandmother was carrying a copy of the Seven Story Mountain, which is Merton's biography of his sort of spiritual autobiography of his conversion, uh, and he ultimately becomes a um, a monk at Gethsemane. It was this huge bestseller in the 1940s, uh, and so they started chatting about Merton and. And love bloomed. That's amazing. I, I had no idea. So, yeah. And then he... And who, who is he at this point? Like, what he is a sort of public Jesuit intellectual? Like, who is he in America? Not, not a Jesuit. Not a Jesuit. Point? I no. understand why any figure associated with me you would think of. <laughs> no, he's a, he's a, um, uh, he's a monk um, and is tremendously famous um he's these sort of spiritual writings sort of mystical writings he also you know in like the 1930s and and from his background he'd studied eastern thought and so that had been a kind of long-running interest and his sort of incorporation of Eastern thought into his reflections from a Catholic background and also had sort of links with, you know, I think Suzuki he corresponded with or met with and, and other sort of Eastern religious figures. You can understand how somebody with that sort of bent incorporating those influences would have become, uh, would have added to his popularity and, and in, in the sixties in particular. Uh, and so he, yeah, I think, I think an important thing to also know is like he, he was, pretty famous, as famous as a cloistered monk could be. He would be writing in all these journals. He published several books. He had the bestseller, Seven Story Mountain, which which today, you know, the most traditionalist Catholic would read. But his later books were more political, radical. He wrote a lot about uh, nuclear disarmament. He was like, he, I think he was uh, friends with Ernesto Cardinal. He was, you know, 
Uh, Joan Baez visited him in his hermitage. He was hugely uh, one, one of the most famous Catholic intellectuals of the time. Yeah, and, and, and I asked Novak about him, and I said, what did you think about Merton back in the day? And he's like, that's the guy we were all trying to catch. Interesting. <laughs> so he's the rare monk, and I guess the rules depend on which order you're in, right? But he's like both a, a monk and a public intellectual, which is um, interesting. Um, I think it would be fair to say that this letter, his response to Novak is... He's a, uh, which kind? I'm sorry. Trappist. Trappist. Yeah. Um, I think it's fair to say that it, the response he has written is, um, uh, I don't know quite how to characterize, like barbed is too strong, but the, the response is couched in a lot of sort of, praise and avowal that nevertheless is signaling to the reader that there is something fundamentally amiss here yeah so it's like it's like a whole page being like oh yeah this is great you know it's 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 two-thirds of the way in where he even begins to enunciate his disagreement and yet somehow he conveys in all of that avowal like you see the turn coming. First of all, nobody writes a two-page letter to tell you that they agree with everything you said, right? Like, that never happens. But also, you sort of you see him again, like setting a trap makes it sound too conniving or something. But you see him, you see the turn coming. So, how would you define? How would you describe the the problem he has with what um, Novak has put forth here? Um, I would say there's two there's two dimensions to it. One is the easier one, which is just because it's new doesn't mean it's it's true or good, um, which is almost banal to say. But I think he he was in a place to be able to say that because he was intimately involved with a lot of these figures. And the second is this whole point that he makes about the vertical dimension. You know, we talk about secular saint is only in the horizontal dimension. It's only in regular time, but Christianity or, or spirituality in general depends on a sort of vertical dimension. He says, um, can, can I read one of the most barbed lines? Sure. Sure. Um, by this last, I mean, of course, explicit, explicit faith in God is the ground of all hope. Mr. Novak open parentheses. I hope this is not a dreadful indiscretion. Close parentheses believes in God as I do. <laughs> <laughs> And speaking to that point as well, in the the next to last paragraph, he says, um, nonetheless, the very style of session article suggests a sales pitch in which something familiar is presented as something absolutely new, in which old hopes in a new dress are presented as new creations, in which a fundamental loss of memory is tacitly condoned, in which, finally, all thought of a vertical dimension is ignored. It's actually right before the, the line. Right. He says the, the horizontal dimension of solidarity in authentic action is unquestionably important, but it is not the only dimension. And the absence of any vertical line, however apophatic, is a great weakness in modern religious radicalism. It calls into questions all statements about freedom, love, discipline, judgment, commitment, meaning, purpose, hope. 
It calls into question above all any real capacity to resist the blandishments of the mass society, which so easily assimilates its own critics and prophets. And that, by the way, he's anticipating exactly what you just said, Jake, that like these folks who think it can't be legislated, where are they going to be, you know, 10, 20 years from now? That and, and of course, you know, for Merton as a Trappist monk, these questions of freedom are tied in with retaining your capacity to separate oneself from mass society and engage in contemplation, right? Um, and specifically contemplation of the divine. Yeah, I I think that um, to be fair, you know, there were a, a number of people, Christopher Lash, others mm -hmm. who would sort of later come around to critique the new left who were originally quite taken with what it offered, which seemed to be a way, among other things, of reconciling what Novak ascribes to the post-war era, which is this, this pragmatism leaning into technocracy that shuts down the horizon of hope and is so afraid of the totalitarian temptation that it, it sort of preemptively rules out anything that smacks of utopianism. And they, they look, there are a number of people who look at the new left at the time and probably, you know, regret it later who see in the new left a way to, to reconcile this. And, um, and yeah, and I, and I think that uh, what Merton is pointing out about the horizontal and the vertical, you, you can also think of in terms of that, sense of time right like that it, it is it's not just the vertical like um in terms of uh you know metaphysical uh hierarchy or, or or the verticality of like the divine being above the 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 uh the world the the physical world it's also the these different dimensions of time and the way in which in a purely political ethic, it's impossible, you know, it, it becomes impossible, even if it appears to be there in the original version, it becomes impossible in a purely secular political ethic to really like have a, a long time horizon, never mind a, a connection to the eternal. Um, the, the, the other thing is, Martin brings into contrast like why he thinks Novak is leery of sort of engaging too much in that vertical dimension. So after he, uh, you know, commits the indiscretion of revealing that Novak believes in God, <laughs> um, he says, but he and I are, of course, very uncomfortable about the fact that those who most vociferously proclaim their faith in God today tend also to be racists, war hawks, fanatics, fortune tellers, and God knows what else besides. When we were assured that your president was spending long, cold nights on his knees and observed that the only result of this exercise was an escalation of insensate killing, we got off our own knees in a hurry and tended to hide the fact that we were ever on them. We are naturally more attracted by the Camusian modesty of those who, without making any flamboyant claims about their relations with the absolute, expose themselves to the same brutal violence which is systematically destroying man as it is also effectively killed God. 
and and so that you know he's he's aware of how easily a sort of proclamation of faith in god slips into precisely the same kind of like authoritarian uh brutal and sort of freedom killing um tendencies that that uh that he and sort of Novak share a distaste for and that the new left is trying to combat, right? And yet at the same point, um, you know, the, the Camusian modesty, modesty is in quotation marks. He doesn't actually, you know, he, he doesn't think that's sufficient and he doesn't think it's it's good uh, to cede to that ground to the, the racist war hawks, fanatics, fortune tellers, and God knows what else beside, right? That the Camusian modesty um which seems so sort of eminently reasonable never allows you to access that vertical dimension and thus sort of um you know limits your horizons in the way that that you're saying Jay. and the perfect example of someone who didn't see the vertical dimension would have been dorothy day right who she was as radical as they come and um she you know even said kind things about Che Guevara at one point, but she also um, had a deep life of prayer, of contemplation uh, in the middle of, of New York City. And she scolded, uh, like Dan Berrigan, who's a radical Jesuit, uh, who later this year, with, like a few months after this essay was published and this letter was published, would do the Cattonsville Nine, uh, where they poured blood over draft records and as a protest against the Vietnam War. She would eventually tell him, you need to pray more, basically. <laughs> Do fewer crazy things and more prayer. So th I think in ba in the back of Burns' mind might be Dorothy Day and, and people like her. Do you know what what was she getting? Like, why did she tell him you need to pray more? Was it about his own soul or was she saying to be more effective? What what was driving that? Do you know? I'm curious. I mean, I uh, I don't exactly know. I know the anecdote that's recorded, which is that um, uh, he had done a, a impromptu mass and he used a teacup, which you're not supposed to do. And she was upset about that. She's like, you have to respect the liturgical norms. And she had the teacup buried in the ground as, as a way to dispose of a sacred object. But, um, but yeah, I think, um, I, mean, I mean, Berrigan was literally on the run from the police for a while. He was underground after that. Um, and surprisingly, Merton, a few months after writing this letter, supported Berrigan and he said, America's a totalitarian country. He just like lost his nerve. And then Novak would later oppose Berrigan a few years after that. He wrote an essay about Berrigan. So a lot of dialectics going on here. Yeah. I used to attend... Um... Um, a sort of mass where there's a small community that would be mass and then and then we'd all have a meal afterwards and, and uh, Berrigan was a part of that. So I got to hang out with him a little bit, which was pretty cool. Yeah, I, I heard he, he finished his life just uh, helping uh, AIDS patients, right? The, the yeah. last 10 years of his life. So he, he did. He followed Dorothy I was thinking, uh, thinking as I read through this, the response, this back and forth between Novak and Merton of uh, documentary really really terrific documentary on the weather underground and the sds and i'm forgetting the name of it now it might be called the weather underground um but you know errors is interviewed and all these people who were uh uh, uh 
Dorn is interviewed. Like the key players are all interviewed, and there's this one um, scene towards the end of the documentary, and I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was uh, one of the members of uh, the Weather Underground who at that point, you know, this is now decades later, and he now, like, owns an Irish bar in the West Village, mm-hmm. and he's renounced the the violent radicalism of his past and um, is, you know, regretful not only over the, the bloodshed, but also over, you know, the youthful fanaticism. And I, I think he's the one who has this line. But it's, anyway, it's one of them who is lamenting um, behaving stupidly as a 20-something, but nevertheless says, but like, but what were we supposed to do about America? You know, and it's like, yeah. and you know, he, he's saying like, but we looked out and we saw this massive military machine and what were we supposed to do about that? And, you know, he's old enough and wise enough to understand that the SDS approach was not only, um, you know, morally, uh, morally wrong, but also politically totally useless and um, accomplished nothing politically. I mean, worse than useless. Counterproductive. Yeah, counter, right. yeah. counterproductive politically. Uh, it was a huge boon to federal law enforcement, of course. And um, so he's wise enough to get all of this, but he's just saying like, but okay, but what, what if you saw this transformation occurring? What if you saw that the... the, the center of power in your country had devoted itself to this kind of complex of, you know, constant war and aggression. And like, what were you supposed to do? What what were we, not you, what were we supposed to do? And, and that he still is like kept up at night by that. And um, I don't think that's an easy question to answer. I don't think that... And I don't blame people who are, or, or I certainly don't think less of people who are, um, who are bothered by that and and can't can't relax in the presence of that question. Right. You know, Merton points out, you know, that once revolutionaries take over, there's once again the same brutality, stupidity, and inhumanity, and glorification of power. Right. And he says, I don't want to end on a dour note. Um, I want to share in these hopes, you know, that that Novak has, and I'm trying, but he says, but I think ultimately my own hopes lie deeper in a more mysterious and eschatological ground, which cannot be easily articulated and which I do not claim to understand myself. Hope on that level is beyond hope. It is a hope that is to all appearance hopeless. And that might be the best uh, Merton has as a rejoinder to that, right? Um, I mean, it's worth thinking about what that means. And um, I mean, it's, even, even now, I, I think about that line in relation to the time we live in today where mm-hmm. uh, hope is at a premium, I think. And uh, it almost seems foolish to, to hope because there's so many factors that if you project into the future, they seem to spell disaster. Um, but this idea that hope is something that can sustain you, even if it on the outward, uh, from one point of view, it looks uh, illogical. Uh, I think it's pursuing that point. 
maybe we probably won't be able to understand it like in one hour and, of conversation. And a hope that's not too tightly ground down to history, right? Hmm. I think. Yeah, what is that word that's got a logical meaning in that context, you guys think? I, I, I take it to mean that temporal time is not the only time. Yeah. I mean, I'm not... What did you think it meant? Oh, I'm curious. Um, that temporal time has a has a has a sort of destiny yeah. that will give it meaning. Like, yeah. Okay. That's a bad You're right. You're right. Thing. Yeah. Which, right. Right. Which doesn't mean the that our, our yeah. Which doesn't mean that our individual existences will necessarily prosper all the time, but that there is a. There's a meaning to history, I guess. Uh, there's a destiny. Well, should we uh, should we move to uh, <laughs> Welbeck's <laughs> destiny for <laughs> for the end of secular time? Who's it? Who's it? So we're doing the last chapter of um, the elementary particles. If you're French, I'm not going to attempt it. If you're English, it's translated as atomized. Whose whose choice was that? That was you, Santiago, who wanted to do. Yeah, it's an inspired okay. choice. An, an inspired, an inspired choice for sure. So the the last chapter of the elementary particles is a you, you might call the science fiction either dystopian or utopian denouement to what is otherwise a novel of hysterical social realism. Uh, You know, uh, bitter hysterical social realism written very much. And I think all three of us have written on Welbeck. So there is a a wealth of Welbeck-related literature from the three of us. And I don't think there would be any disagreement that this novel is a lacerating, vicious, deeply personal attack on the spirit of the 1960s as a demonic spirit, as a both metaphorically and ritualistically, and perhaps uh, indeed, perhaps most of all, metaphysically satanic spirit that leads both to child sacrifice and and people tend to forget this when discussing the elementary particles and they sort of focus on the you know french social realism and, and this sort of uh you know very like of the ground uh you know earthy sort of vulgarity as realism and they but they leave out the part where there is a hippie rock and roll charlie manson character uh or or episode in the middle of the novel where there is actual child murder uh which is the culmination of the spirit of the flower children so that's the middle section of the book and then the right, end for, what, for, the for, for Welbeck Manson is not an aberration he's like he's the culmination of this spirit yeah okay and, and let let's not forget let's let's really not forget that you may view Welbeck's characterization of that as suspect or errant, but he was not alone in perceiving it that way. Bernadette Dorn, right? SDS figure. So the, the archetypal 68er, American 68er leftist, 
right, celebrated Manson's murder publicly, celebrated these murders publicly as the spirit of, uh, you know, that, that this was a revolutionary act because it was the spilling of bourgeois blood. So, you know, Welbeck has his own particular reading of it, but to to see that reading as only, uh, you know, vitriolic hyperbole is to miss the fact that there were radical leftists who were celebrating Charlie Manson as a, as a revolutionary actor. That's the, that's the middle of the novel. The end of the novel is something quite different. And where does the end of the novel uh, take us? Santiago, you want to take it from there? So the, up until this point, this is the epilogue that we're talking about. So up until this point, the beginning of the epilogue, it says, up until this point, this has been a fictionalized uh, version of, of, of the last moments of the human race. But now we're going to give you history, right? So this is what really you know, took place towards the end. And it describes one of the two main characters of the novel, Michel Drzinski, uh, who is a biologist, who is the person who, <clears throat> through his biological research, discovered a way to make, to clone the human race into a new species that's uh, asexual in its reproduction, that lives forever, uh, can constantly renew its cells, um, that's uh, covered with um, an epidermis that enhances erotic pleasure all over, uh, and that is a sort of utopian existence that doesn't, that's overcome um, the burden of being human that um, in the late 20th century, human beings just couldn't sustain anymore. So. It's it's a it's a post-human looking back at the human race. That's what you find out at the end of the book. And um, he says, look, there were three metaphysical mutations or mental mutations in the human race. There was the ancient wisdom, there was Christianity, and between the end of the medieval era and the rise of Michel Drzinski, the hero of the novel, there was this materialist era, which was really miserable. Um, it gave us science, which is good, but it told us that life sucks. It ends in death. Um, nothing lasts. But Michel Drzinski created a new race of animals that is happy now. So we we play we pay homage to these miserable ancestors of ours. Um, so it's crazy science fiction, but it it gets to what um, it's it's a, it, I think of this book or especially this epilogue as a sort of like terrible or crazy synthesis of Merton and Novak saying um, we've achieved social justice uh, and equality by making clones. So we're all twins in a way. Mankind must disappear and give way to a new species, which was asexual and immortal, a species which had outgrown individuality, separation, and evolution. Finally, really did it. You maniac! You blew it up! Ah, damn you! God damn you all to hell! So the political horizontal dimension is achieved through a sort of brotherhood of being your clone, uh, sisterhood, because the whole species is is, uh, is female. And um, the vertical dimension is not really achieved, but since you live forever, you don't worry about death. Um, So... And at one point in the epilogue, it says, 
you know, now that we're a new species, we don't, you know, we still think about truth and beauty, but we're not really interested in that as much anymore because we're fine. Um, and, and the other thing to remember about this novel is that Michel Drzezinski is considered, he's sort of like Christ. And then there's this Ubjek, Ubjek, I don't know how to pronounce it. It's a Czech name, so Phil, you should know. But um, uh, he's sort of the follower of Michel Drzezinski, the popularizer of his thought, and the right. one that applies it to create the new race. So he's who, sort of like who attempts a curious synthesis of the logical positivism of the Vienna Circle and the religious positivism of Comte, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. One, I, I think, important contrast. So, you know, the Novak is talking about, like, how technical solutions are not enough. We need a metaphysics because you need to understand what kind of being human beings are, right? And, you know, what our nature tells us. Um, and Welbeck is part of a, you know, a line of, of French thinkers always think of this in relationship to De Maistre, who are just like, nature is horrible, <laughs> right? Like, um, there's a great bit early in the novel where the character is is, is watching this documentary, uh, The Animal Kingdom. Graceful animals like gazelles and antelopes spent their days in abject terror while lions and panthers lived out their lives in listless imbecility punctuated by explosive bursts of cruelty. They slaughtered weaker animals, dismembered and devoured the sick and the old before falling back into a brutish sleep where the only activity was that of the parasites feeding on them from within. Some of these parasites were host to smaller parasites, which in turn were a breeding ground for viruses. Snakes moved among the trees, their fangs bared, ready to strike at bird or mammal, only to be ripped apart by hawks. The pompous, half-witted voice of Claude Darget, filled with awe and unjustifiable admiration, narrated these atrocities. Michel trembled with indignation. But as he watched, the unshakable conviction grew that nature, taken as a whole, was a repulsive cesspit. All in all, nature deserved to be wiped out in a holocaust, and man's mission on Earth was probably to do just that. And the, the subtext of that passage, right, which Demestre absolutely also, Desad, whose uh, mm -hmm. writing is, is full of, uh, you know, desire to defile, destroy, overturn nature, which is seen as a, a, a stupid... Uh, the, the worst kind of tyranny, a stupid tyranny, a tyranny of, of kind of blind idiocy. But the subtext of Michel's revulsion uh, toward nature there is that he's also uh, expressing hate for his half-brother, Bruno, who is the, uh, the, the sort of real protagonist of the novel, as it were. So there are these two half-brothers who are at the center of this novel. They are both abandoned by their mother, who's a hippie a flower child, who living out what is, in Welbeck's telling, the ultimate spirit of enlightenment rationalism, you know, goes off to have orgies and abandons her children because that's what a truly liberated individual does. Uh, but before running off to do this and join a Manson murder cult, she spawns these two half-brothers, Bruno and Michelle. And whereas Michelle is the figure of the science as the conquest of nature, um, which leads us to the epilogue of the novel where finally we've triumphed uh, over our humanity. Bruno is nothing but 
dumb animal nature and in his dumb animal nature he is also the one capable of love and suffering and uh, a kind of you know humanistic longing that michelle in his sort of reified spirit is observing from a kind of you know what you might think of as like a, a sort of a, a cognitive distance a sort of uh, emotionless distance he's been he's been conditioned for that by the the lack of love from his mother is the the sort of uh the psychology you get from the novel but i think that you know in the the opposition between these two half brothers and in uh and bruno uh, bruno i should say also the half brother who is the dumb animal nature is also disgusted by nature he's just incapable of overcoming it because he he loathes himself so he is it's not as if he's enjoying this kind of orgiastic animal ecstasy right he's not capable of that yeah. so he's dwelling in insect like you know antipathy you know swarming antipathy for himself but but i think that's the subtext of that passage he he's he's sexually obsessed right but it's not sexual liberation right it's just like a sequence it's enslavement uh, it's yeah, sexual it's enslavement. enslavement right yeah uh, his childhood had been difficult and his adolescence ghastly. He was 42 now. Objectively, death was still a long way off. What was left? Oh, there would be other blowjobs and he would come to accept having to pay for them. A life lived in pursuit of a goal lives little time for reminiscence. As his erections became shorter and more infrequent, Bruno felt himself succumb to a sad decline. His only goal in life had been sexual and he realized it was too late to change that now. In this, Bruno was characteristic of his generation. You know, it's like the sex is fundamentally meaningless other than brief bits of pleasure that as you age become more difficult to obtain, less satisfying and and, and more infrequent. And then you die. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and part of Welbeck's worldview is that the liberalization of sexual norms in the 60s led to inequality, just like uh, liberalization of the economy led to inequality later on. So uh, some there will be sexual paupers and there will be sexual billionaires and Bruno's closer to the pauper side, uh, especially right. as he ages. Uh, there's this right. one- And all of us, all of us will be paupers as we age, right? right because right. we worship, you know, we worship youth. Um, and so- yeah. And, but, and the, the other thing about Bruno is he's a poet, right? He's a writer. He wants to be a writer. He has some success. He writes a poem that uh, is published in this great uh, French uh, periodical. Um, uh, Welbeck in this novel makes fun of Philippe Soler, who apparently is an extremely powerful figure in French literature. And, and he just he just mocked him, which was a pretty gutsy move. Um so I, I see it as sort of like the CP Snow two cultures thing at, at their terminus. Uh, there's art and there's science and they're half brothers at best. And uh, art in the end is useless because nature leads to death and uh, science can maybe help us. It's the technical solution uh, that Novak said, uh, you know, technique is not enough. Well, actually technique is, is, is enough according to Welbeck. Or, right. I mean, he specifically is like, yeah, he says like, you know, Obviously, like the like Judaism and Christianity and Islam for once agreed. Right. And that this is like a terrible thing. It's going to 
um, gravely undermines human dignity and its unique relationship with the creator. And then he writes, only Buddhists demurred, noting that all the Buddhist teachings were founded on the awareness of the three impediments of old age, sickness, and death, and that the enlightened one, if he had meditated on it, would not necessarily have rejected a technical solution. <laughs> and the, the the traditional humans also reject it. Uh, Though it may be difficult for us to understand this now, it is important to remember how central the notions of personal freedom, human dignity, and progress were to people in the age of materialism. The confused and arbitrary nature of these ideas meant, of course, that they had little practical or social function, which might explain why human history from the 15th to the 20th century was characterized by progressive decline and disintegration. I mean, there is something worth considering in the fact that the most successful secular civilization in maintaining a vertical dimension over time in a purely horizontal society is China. Uh, there is a like a theological difference that seems to allow Chinese civilization to flourish over time without the verticality and to maintain, a degree of continuity over time without a, like a, an explicitly eternal verticality. Um, I think it's um, maybe not a mistake, but it's too straightforward to say that Welbeck is presenting the scientific technical solution as a solution without a kind of, you know, perverse delight in his awareness oh, yeah. that the solution entails the uh, the the termination of the species, right? Like it's <laughs> so so. I, fair, but, fair. but it's but it's also not satire, right? He does delight in the he does delight in the destruction of this disgusting animal nature which oppresses and obsesses him like it's both at the same time i think there is a real kind of relief I, like the the michelle character expresses something which is not merely a tool of satire it's, it's not that this technical solution to human longing and human suffering is only meant to satirize the scientific position it's expressing a genuine urging in that direction that you know the 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 writer Welbeck it seems to me expresses with great conviction and and considerable empathy for that position at the same time it is aware of the fact that the only solution that appears to be available the only way out of this cul-de-sac of uh you know sort of endlessly like diminishing materialism, a materialism that the more it opens up and the more it liberates gets smaller and smaller until like bug man is far too grand a description for whatever is left. It's the virus inside the parasite after a certain point, you know, but at the same time, it's like, it's expressive. It's sort of the brilliance of the book and the brilliance of, Welbeck as a writer is his ability to express both at the same time. And it's something to me greater than satire. It's like a, an ability to hold both convictions, both longings, both positions simultaneously 
and not reduce it to a, not not feel the need to make a point with it ultimately where the one needs to invalidate the other yeah and 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 a couple novels later he's going to imagine uh, a cloned species that that lives indefinitely and they're going to be dissatisfied in fact so he does revisit this this idea and yeah he i agree with you that he's not advancing a, a thesis he's he's being an artist yeah and and the thing about it is that like the horrific solution that he comes to also makes a certain amount of sense, right? It makes a, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and it has a lot of adherence. Let's not kid ourselves. Like, no, I mean, is, transhumanism is a very real thing, you know? Especially um, among billionaires. I was, I was just about to say that, yeah. yeah. It's and a, and there are political power. And there are Christian transhumanists, not many, but I've heard, I've yeah. seen reconciliations. But um, I, I the, remember- the other option is reconciling yourself to nature, right? You know, right. or finding. Uh, you ever read uh, the Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Dillard? Mm-mm. Um, I mean, it's it's these sort of like religious, philosophical medit- meditations on nature, right? But she begins with. Not the very beginning, but in the, in the first chapter, like this descrip- description of of this like giant water bug that paralyzes its prey and then like eats it from the inside out, um, and then you know, of course, many carnivorous animals devour their prey alive. The usual method seems to be to subdue the victim by drowning or grasping it so it can't flee, then eating it whole or in a series of bloody bites. Frogs eat everything whole, stuffing prey into their mouths with their thumbs. People have seen frogs with their wide jaws so full of live dragonflies they couldn't close them. Ants don't even have to catch their prey. In the spring, they swarm over newly hatched featherless birds in the nest and eat them tiny bite by bite. That it's rough out there and Chansey is no surprise. Every live thing is a survivor on one kind of extended emergency bivouac. But at the same time, we are also created. In the Quran, Allah asks, The heaven and earth and all in between, thinkest thou I made them in jest? It's a good question. And then later, cruelty is a mystery and the waste of pain. But if we describe a world to encompass these things, a world that is long, a long brutish game, then we bump again against another mystery, the inrush of power and light, the canary that sings on the skull, unless all ages and races of men have been deluded by the same mass hypnotist who there seems to be such a thing as beauty, a grace, wholly gratuitous. Hmm. I have to, I have to pick at something you said, though, that, you know, that the, then if not transhumanism, then the only solution is to reconcile ourselves to nature because while that makes moral sense and it has an aphoristic logic, the problem with that that I think both and Novak and well both Novak and Welbeck yeah. are dwelling on is that you know modernity has made modernity has denatured nature in such a way as to make it impossible to reconcile ourselves to nature, and so. You know, Welbeck dwells more on the sort of um, on the philosophical dimension of this in the sense that he sees enlightenment rationalism as having destroyed any possibility of the transcendent and any legitimate limitation 
on human uh, human uh, appetite, and in having done so, destroying the possibility of love, which initially frees people to um, you know have all kinds of interesting and novel sexual arrangements, but ultimately leaves them sterile. Right? Novak, sort of in a parallel way, is saying that in his analysis of the new left, is saying that the horrors of the 20th century, having so shrunken the horizon of the uh, political of what man considers possible or permissible, has now made it so that our natures can, we can no longer recognize what our natures need because that's been somehow uh, curtailed or atomized. And um, so it's, it's like they're both saying, and this is what he finds attractive about the new left because the new left is trying to escape that. And of course, like Welbeck sees the new left as being, you know, the ultimate exemplars of this tendency towards sort of the destructiveness of uh, individualism. But they're both saying that, like, it's, yes, you have to reconcile yourself to your nature, but what do you do when your nature has been either destroyed by history or imprisoned by history? And that then becomes not something that the individual can achieve on their own. There has to be some kind of collective effort to revive or liberate that nature so that the individual can get, uh, reconnect with their own nature. Yeah. Um, this idea of reconciling yourself with nature, even, uh, even in the ancient world, I think was, was, uh, questionable. Uh, I think, uh, you know, Plato says we long the good forever. And even, even, um, even the wisest of, uh, of ancient, uh, thinkers would have longed for something like eternal life. Um, if you look at the book Ecclesiastes in the Bible. Lion lying down with the lamb. Right. Exactly. Some, some sort of solution to this uh, unknown known, known unknown that we want. Um, and Welbeck is right to, to push at that wound. Yeah. That's what drives a lot of the energy of his work is that um, we'll try anything to resolve this this quandary, which which insects don't have. Uh, I'll respect to any dealer or like, um, you know, elephants are great creatures, but they don't long for the good forever. So, um, I think that's the dilemma at the heart of all three of these texts. Indeed, Santiago, it's been uh, a pleasure having you. This was uh, this was. I think an especially good conversation, if I do say so myself. So yeah, this was wonderful coming on. Great, I, I was so happy uh, to do this, and um, I will keep listening. <laughs> uh, I'm still a fan now. I'm <laughs> here, so and uh, yeah, I hope you can keep in touch, Jake. I'd like, love to get to know you better at some point. Uh, and me as well, man. I, I look forward to staying in touch. And from that point of view, it's most improbable that anyone will ever know exactly who is enjoying the shadow of whom.
I've given our objector his fair share of program time. When these men talk, I never know whether to regard him as a man of genius or as an ape of genius. 